0: It's good to see you in God's house this Easter Sunday. I want to give a shout out also to the couple hundred people that are down the hall in the youth room who are watching there. Um, I would love to be with you, but I can ontologically only be in one place at one time. So um, it's good to have you in in God's house as as well. We are going to look at 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15, the resurrection chapter. Uh, If you'd like to turn there in your Bible. Uh, Last year we looked at the first 11 verses. Uh, Today we're going to look at verses uh, 12 to 28. Uh, And in the first 11 verses, if you were here and and remember what we talked about or you just know what 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 11 is about, uh, that is where Paul establishes the nature of the gospel, the good news of Christianity uh, is there uh, is a savior. His name is Christ. Uh, He came to earth to bear our sins and he died and was buried and he rose again the third day. Uh, And that is the gospel message. Uh, And that's the reason why he came to give us uh, life and hope. But there's more to the message as Paul uh, explains uh, in the ensuing verses that we want to look at. uh, So we could say that was goal number one last year. Uh, So we want to look at a goal number two this year. But since you might not have been here last year, we're going to call it goal number one. Okay. (laughs) I just lost you, but you follow me. Yeah. Three people are with me. So we want to look at the the, the notion uh, today, the premise that arises from this particular text uh, about the, the goals of God uh, concerning the resurrection of Christ. Let's pray before we do that. God, God we give you uh, the next 30 minutes, and we pray that it would uh, echo in eternity, that uh, we would be changed uh, into your likeness and understand more about you uh, and your great plan for us, we as your saints. And uh, we pray for those who don't yet know you. Uh, We pray that as they search for you, uh, you, the good shepherd, would find them and draw them to yourself as only you can do. And we thank you that you are the risen Lord, the Messiah, uh, and we worship you. And and thank you that you're here to teach and guide us today in Christ's name. Amen. Well, what are God's goals uh, concerning the resurrection of his son? So uh, we're going to look at uh, goal number one or two. One. Goal number one. is, uh, part of his goal, other than the gospel message displayed in the first 11 verses, uh, the, the secondary goal uh, this morning that we want to look at is uh, God's purpose was to replace illogical reasoning about the resurrection with logical reasoning. Translated, it's logical to believe in the resurrection of Christ based on the evidence at hand and illogical to refute that and to stand against that. This is going to be his argument. And uh, logic is fun to talk about because we live in such a logical place in D.C., do you know some illogical people? You just kind of scratch your head and you're like, you got to be kidding me. You believe what? Et cetera. Illogical people. Um, uh, what is illogic? Uh, illogic is a, a denial of that which is factual. Uh, it's a denial of verifiable evidence. Uh, it is opting to embrace a notion or a position uh, that is fundamentally flawed because it's not based on great evidence. And anymore in our culture, you don't even have to have a whole lot of evidence. You just have to have a lot of emotional rhetorical zeal atti- attached to it. Rhetoric is an argument. Uh, well, it's not according to logical principles. Uh, this particular church, uh, Corinth, the Corinthian church that was founded by the Apostle Paul, uh, had its issues. If you study the book, uh, you name it, they did it wrong. And he he's their pastor trying to fix their their bad theology and their their sinful activities. Uh, when you get to chapter fifteen, he's going to address an, an issue of illogical reasoning that uh, uh, related to the resurrection of Jesus Christ that was in the church, it was an issue. Uh, and to understand their position, we need to understand uh, that people even in our own day, still draw the same illogical reasoning uh, into the thinking about Christ as they did back then. Um, we'll call their church, because our church is Burke Community Church, we'll call them the Corinth Community Church. Does that work? Thank you for being caring and compassionate on Easter Sunday. Corinth Community Church. What did they think? Uh, well, polytheism permeated their church, and so uh, th- there was a lot of reasons why they probably didn't want to offend the culture around them. In-, in believing the absolutist doctrine of the resurrection of Jesus, and so they drug some of the illogical reasoning into their church. And you kind of know how illogical reasoning goes. It says things like this: uh, illogical reasoning. There is no truth. There's truths, uh, but there's no truth. But there's many truths, and they're all equally valid. Uh, Those who uh, believe uh, that truth is not absolute uh, defy their own system because to make the statement, they've just verified there's absolute truth because they absolutely believe in their position there's no no truth. Uh, But they believe that truth is personal, it's highly individual, and people just have perceptions of truth, really. Um, Based on that particular viewpoint, which was alive and well in the Corinthian church, uh, they would believe that all religious positions are equally valid. We have some observations concerning this. Do all religions believe that they're equally valid? I mean, at the same time, no? Because you pick a religion, I'll I'll flat out tell you, uh, Christianity says that it is the way to God. In fact, I don't just say that. That's what Jesus said. John chapter 14, verse 6, what did he say? I am the way, the truth, and the life. Not a way, but the way. And he says, no one sees the Father unless you come by me. That's pretty absolutist. And so when you look at logical reasoning, uh, we need to understand uh, that Paul is going to use logic to talk to the Corinthians because humans are logical people. Uh, and the, va- the, the, the concept of logic that Paul is going to use is, is uh, based on the law of non-contradiction. Uh, Aristotle was the one who discovered logic because God built logic into the cosmos so we can all communicate and work with each other, Correct. But we don't really sit around and study all the principles of logic of Aristotle because it's like, huh, what are you talking about? But we use it all the time. So if you study logic, the very first uh, premise of all logic is the law of non-contradiction. Paul's going to employ it in speaking to his church. Uh, What is the principle of law of non-contradiction in logic? It is this. Two truths cannot be true at the same time that are diametrically opposed. I mean, two things that say they're true in the same sense cannot be true at the same time. It's illogical to believe that. So, I used to be a gardener. I still love gardening. Half my questions from church deal with theology or gardening. Somebody sent me an email this week. I don't know if you're in the church. They sent me a really long email. It started out like this. Dear Pastor Marty, we need salvation. I'm thinking, oh, it's a theological situation. And they said, no, it relates to our lawn. Could you help us? I'm like, are you kidding me? So, anyway. I just got stopped between the services with another weed question uh, about how, I mean, you've really, did you just hear the message? Anyway, uh, so I want to talk about the law of non-contradiction in relationship to the concept of Roundup. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you all know what Roundup is? Love it. I've used it, I don't know, 40 years and I'm still alive. Uh, So (laughs) Roundup. So basically, what is Roundup? I mean, like, why do you use that in your yard? Kills everything. It's a systemic spray, it kills everything that contacts what it, grass, weeds, everything. Uh, so but let's, let's just assume that I believe in the notion that Roundup kills everything. And you for from some other state, I don't know which one, but you're from another state and you believe the premise that, hey man, I can, I can spray it on my lawn. It will not affect my dwarf fescue. It would just selectively kill weeds. Really? can these two truths be true at the same time in the same sense? No, one's logical, one's illogical. So I'll let the guy who's illogical go first. (laughs) Spray away, man. What's gonna happen to his yard? Yeah, now I'm giving you an illustration from history because I've seen someone do this. My dad had a neighbor, beautiful yard near a lake, beautiful mowed dwarf fescue, I love it. Lines and everything. He had some weeds come up, got round up, began to walk and spray. Within seven to 14 days, you could see where he walked and sprayed. (laughs) It's illogical. And by the way, I'll just throw this in for extra. It's got nothing to do with my sermon, but you want a gardening tip so you don't email me tomorrow and ask or something. So if you really want an effective kill with your roundup, don't you? You want results? Mix miracle grow in the tank. Ooh, because then all the... what happens then? This is what gardeners do. Then the weed thinks, oh, this is awesome food. If it's a systemic spray, it's going to take it down to the deepest part of the root system. You get a total kill of the spotted spurge or whatever it is. That's just extra. That's got some. that's not got anything to do with the sermon. What were we talking about? Logic. Logic. So those two truths can't be true at the same time. One's true, one's not true. What do you, what do you look for to test truth? Hard evidence you spray everything, I'll just spray the weeds in the dirt. I think I'll prove my premise that it kills everything. It's a systemic spray. Why all the talk about logic? Because Paul is addressing a church that is, part of the church has embraced illogic concerning the resurrection of Christ and their, their pastors are preaching that there is a resurrection. And you know, when you think about it, uh, why is it that people buy into unsound thinking about the resurrection? I mean, like, why do they not want to embrace it? I can think of five reasons, and I'll, I'll give them to you uh, ones that I've encountered in life. Uh, number one, why will they not dra- uh, embrace the logic of the resurrection that's embedded in history? Uh, number one, they, they want to appear open minded. Well, I had a professor when I was working on my uh, doctorate in apologetics, and the professor said this one day in class, you would have to have a PhD to come up with this observation. So I'm sitting, taking notes, and he said, you know, our culture prides itself in being open-minded. He said, sometimes, gentlemen, you can be so open-minded that your brain falls out. (laughs) Wow, that is deep, yeah. So there's limitations on open-mindedness, but they, they won't accept their resurrection because I'm an open-minded person to all viewpoints. Uh, number two, uh, they don't want to offend other people. Number three, they want to go along to get along. Number four, they're smug in their philosophical system thinking that it is true that two diametrically opposed things can be true at the same time. Or number five, they don't want to come to terms with the historicity of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So they pass on that. Uh, So what Paul has done is he's looking at a church that has some of those arguments and he wants to help them understand that Christ has risen from the dead Uh, and they're in a polytheistic culture as I've said and Paul wants to help them understand there was a resurrection of Christ as prophesied. So now we're to the text. It takes me a few minutes to get there. you with me? You're not lying. You're you're with me? So we're in verse 12. Harry, you with me? Yes. Verse 12. He says, let's think about it. Now Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, I have a question, Paul says, for you in the Corinthian church. Uh, How do some of you among you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? See the law of non contradiction? The pastors are preaching what? There is a resurrection in history of Christ. What's some of the people in church saying? I don't believe what he's saying. I don't believe in a resurrection. Paul says, it's, it's one or the other based on the evidence at hand. Remember the roundup illustration? I mean, one is true, one is not true. One's logical, one's not illogical. Uh, Paul says, if Christ is preached, um, I took six years of Greek, four, uh, two, in, two in college and four in grad school, because I wanted to read the New Testament in Greek, because all my friends were always telling me when I grew up, so much is lost in translation. You can't trust the Bible. Guess what I found out after six years? You can trust the translation. It's another sermon series in and of itself. But here in the text, when Paul says Christ is preached, he uses a word, there's two words you could use in Greek for preached. He uses the word keruso, which means, it's a military term, which means to proclaim a victory in a battle. So the the battle of victory here is the battle of sin and death through the birth, the death and resurrection of Christ. He says, we proclaim Christ's victory over sin and death. How how then do some of you say that there wasn't a resurrection? So he says to them, let's, let's assume that your position is true, that, uh, you know, uh, that your thinking's valid to yourself. If there's not a resurrection, what's it pragmatically mean? Well, when you embrace illogic, things unravel quickly. Have you ever played dominoes? I'm sure you have. Dominoes. And you set them all up, and they're running all over the place, and your little sister comes in and pushes one over. Don't you love it? Yeah. And so you have to set them all up again. So like how many dominoes do you have to knock over to knock them all over? One. One. So Paul says, okay, if we knock over the domino of the resurrection of Christ, how important is that to a theological system? He says, uh, let's, let's see how it unwinds. Verse 13. He says, but if there's no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. He's still in the grave. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith is also in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God. Why? Well, be, because we witnessed against God that he had raised Christ when he didn't. Whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. Verse 16. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. He's now said that twice, so hopefully you got the point. Uh, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is what? Worthless. Worthless. Why? Because it's based on the premise of the resurrection. So you're still in your sins. And he says, then those who have fallen asleep, which in the Greek text is a euphemism for death, speaking of Christians, because he says those who have fallen asleep in Christ, which is a terminology for a Christian, they've perished. If, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are all men as pastors and teachers, most to be pitied. Why? Because we're going to go around teaching a message about the resurrection of Christ, the Messiah from the grave, and this Messiah, this anointed one, he, he, didn't, he didn't live. He died. So why do you have your job? Like, why am I preaching three times on a Sunday morning? Every single Sunday. I mean, isn't there something else I could do with my life? Be a gardener, thank you. Yes. <laughs> I'll fall back on that. Yeah, I've actually thought about that. I love gardening. I mean, and I said before, if I just get to mow in heaven, I'm good. I'm serious. I mean, just let me, because there's no weeds there. Just, anyway, just. So Paul says, everything unravels. It's like, if you don't have a resurrected Savior, you have got nothing. You don't need a pastor to preach and teach. Uh, You're still in your sins. You lost everything. So I would say, if you don't have a resurrection of Christ, then you, by definition, have despair because he's the answer to all of life's questions like where did death come from why do people why do people die why do they get disease why is there brutality what why are we here what is my purpose because if there's a living god who sent his son down to die for our sins and he rose again to defeat sin and death that changes everything so Paul says, let's think about the logical notion that uh, I'm teaching a resurrection. You've bought into false logic. Well, what happens? Well, he says, your false logic is highly destructive. I don't know how you feel about parachuting. Is it God's will for your life? Yeah. No. And you know, some things in the will of God, what does he want to know from me? What do I want to know from him? Finding his will, sometimes is super easy. It is not on my bucket list to jump out of a plane. Now, I used to be a tree trimmer. I don't have any problem with heights. But I do have a problem with 15,000 feet. Uh, next, uh, on, on uh, May the 1st, I'm going to be at Fort Bragg uh, speaking to 140 army chaplains. And then they opened uh, the seminar up to the entire community of Faithsville on the base. And so my subject is uh, the, the value of biblical revelation for morality as opposed to tenuous secular versions. It's going to be exciting. I think I get three hours to talk to them. But... That's a special ops base. How many army people here? They're so quiet. Yeah, it's a special ops base, isn't it? They're known for army airport. Are they not? This is where they jump big time. They they were trying to talk me into becoming one of us. (laughs) Huh? Like, what's that entail? So I had three colonels tell me, yeah, you go up with us. We'll give you the best parachutist team we've got. What are they called? The golden... Golden Knights, they said, the Golden Knights will take you up, tandem jump, you can bring your wife with you, jump out, awesome. (laughs) I don't want to see Jesus with my wife at the same time, no. And I said, I can't even get my wife hardly on a plane to fly to California to see the grandkids, which which is where she is, by the way, right now. Um, So I said, there's just certain things I know are not God's will for my life. So one day, I saw a guy on television going for his first jump, businessman, he was all excited, he was on his bucket list, and he's jumping. But the only problem was, he's jumping in the Florida Everglades. I mean, like, near him. Hello? Remember I talked about logical, illogical? I'm just going to say at the beginning, jump in Arizona. But anyway, so the guy's jumping. Remember, the premise I'm developing is illogic is dangerous. Remember? So the guy's jumping, and he jumps out, and his friends, on, friends are on the ground filming it, and it's like, whoa, man, look at Larry. This is cool. And he's coming down, and everybody's hitting the drop zone because they're, you know, guiding themselves like they're supposed to, and uh, he's not doing anything. He's just holding on and just going with the wind, and you can see him drifting off toward the Everglades. <laughs> he freaks out. All of a sudden, they see him reach down to his leg, and he starts pulling on his leg and his pants, and he pulls out a giant military knife with jagged, like, teeth in it. And they're like, what what, what, what is he doing? I kid you not, I watched the guy do this. He pulls the knife out. He puts it up on the strings above his head. (laughs) Logical, illogical. Illogic is dangerous. He cut the strings on the left side. So then his body's swinging like a rag doll. And his shoe begins to collapse. And he falls into the Everglades where there are Alligators. Now in the very first service, I continued to preach, and some lady said, Did he live? <laughs> yeah, he lived. They had to go fish him out. Illogic is a dangerous thing, is it not? You don't go, that's just you don't cut the lines. You just go with it. You're in the army, correct? You don't do this, right? You do not do this. Yeah. yeah. so but people do this all the time when it comes to the resurrection of Christ. They adapt illogical reasoning and cut the lines all the time. And they think they're going to drift into paradise. No, you're not. That's destructive. Paul says uh, you need to move that which is logical. Christ came to replace your illogical reasoning with logical reasoning concerning the Messiah. Because God came and died and rose again. Goal number two, it replaced death with life. Verse 20, Paul says, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the firstfruits of those who are asleep. Uh, the very first word is what word? B-U-T? Yeah, it's a contrast. So he says, apart from your illogic over here and the logic about the resurrection that God wants to put in your mind, uh, we also need to look at the premise that uh, the the, the reality, as Paul says, because I've seen Christ on on the road uh, to Damascus when I was headed there to kill Christians. I, I, a rabbi, ran into the resurrected Christ and he had a question for me. What was the question? The risen Messiah asked Paul. Paul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? Well, he got saved on that road. So notice what he says here. But now Christ has been raised. So since the, the New and Old Testaments are inspired of God, every, every jot, every tittle, every crossing of every T, the dotting in every I, to use an, an English illustration of the original text, uh, what words they chose, what the Holy Spirit chose are very important, correct? So what, what prepositions are chose, what gram- grammars chose is very important. So why is that important here? Well because of what Verbi he uses here. He says, "Christ has been raised." That's very interesting, because when I was reading that in my Greek text this week, it's a perfect tense. You don't see the perfect tense very often, but when you see it, it grammatically denotes this: a past act with an abiding, uninterrupted result. Why do you use that word for this? Because once Christ was raised from the dead, he was never to die again. It's in the grammar. This is why Jesus can tell the churches in Asia Minor, the seven churches that he speaks to as the high priest in Revelation chapter one, verse 18. He says, I am the living one. He says, I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades on my belt. Why? Because I defeated sin and death. He's alive forevermore. Jesus, Paul says, is alive. So when we look at the uh, fact that Jesus is alive, we can make the summation, crucifixion did in fact kill him. Why? Because no one survived a crucifixion by the Roman army. They were professionals at doing this. Um, There was a book written by Martin Hengel, a scholar, on the crucifixion. Uh, You can look at my copy if you'd like. It goes through the historicity of the Romans didn't develop crucifixion, uh, but they fine-tuned it to a whole new terrible art form of death. Uh, But basically, the premise is you didn't survive crucifixion, Uh, and you didn't escape either. Well, they, they snuck a body, a double, a body double, Someone came in and no, because based on Roman law, if those, those soldiers lost the, the convict, they were executed. Uh, well, maybe when he died, he was in the, in the tomb, and he woke up in the tomb, and he was able to push the massive stone out of the way. And uh, no, because you, even if you survived, you wouldn't even have the strength to move the stone but you didn't survive Roman crucifixion anyway. The medical evidence uh, teaches us that Christ died. And there's an article, you can pull it off my notes tomorrow online. Uh, 1986, there was an article published by the Journal of Association of Medical, uh, the Journal of American Medical Association. Um, uh, The title of the article is uh, by a series of doctors. It's titled, On the Physical Death of Jesus Christ. And they go through the entire crucifixion event and explain how all the things that he experienced were the body shutting down to death, that cried, Christ medically died. So he died. Paul says he died, but, but he rose again. How do you know that he rose again? Well, because you have the evidence of many witnesses, many of whom laid their lives down for that which they knew. So who saw Jesus after he'd been crucified? Well, um, Mary Magdalene saw him. Uh, the women at the tomb saw him on resurrection morning. The disciples uh, on the road to Emmaus saw him, had a conversation with him. Uh, the disciples... Uh, saw Jesus when they were behind closed doors. He just appeared in the room. That's a whole another cool sermon to talk about. How did he do that? Well, his dimension is way beyond our dimension. For him to go into a room with locked doors is no problem, but he still had a body that they could touch. Amazing flesh, huh? So he appeared to the disciples. He appeared to the seven disciples as they fished. He appeared to 11 disciples on the mountain. He appeared to 500 people all at one time. And the most amazing thing is he appeared to his brother, James, who then trusted him as the Messiah. This is unbelievable. If your brother came to you as children and told you, I got to let you know, mom and dad haven't told you, but I'm God. Why are you laughing? Wouldn't you laugh? Yeah, Right. Right. See, Jesus is making this proclamation that he is God in the flesh, the Messiah, and none of his family believed in him. But after his resurrection, his brother James trusted his brother as the Messiah, the Savior. Why? Because he saw the evidence. He became the leader of the church in Jerusalem so, they had many witnesses. Peter and John were two witnesses of the resurrection of Christ. Uh, the gospel account, John chapter 20, tells us that when they ran to the tomb and looked into the empty tomb, uh, they saw the grave clothes there and they left in astonishment and amazement and ran, ran back to tell others. What they see when they looked in? Well, the body would have been wrapped like a mummy in cloth, uh, and in between the, the folds w- were spices. And scholars estimate that the spices would have weighed 100 pounds. So number one, you couldn't have moved even if you woke up from the crucifixion. Uh, you couldn't even move your arms because you're wrapped up like a mummy, and then you have a hundred pounds wrapped around your body. You could not even escape. So what did they see when they walked into the tomb and looked in? They saw a cocoon shaped mu- mu- mummy that was hollow, with a little napkin on the face laid off to the side, and they believed. They believed what? There is no way he could have got out of there unless he passed right through the clothing. Because he was resurrected as he said he was. They believed. uh, To the point that uh, when uh, Peter was executed by Nero, uh, he said to the execution detail, I will not be executed right side up like my savior. I will be crucified upside down. He could have recanted at any moment, but he did not. Why? Well, because he had seen the evidence that Christ had given him a life where there had been death. It says here in the passage that Christ, uh, Paul says, he, he is the first fruits of those who uh, are asleep. He's the first fruits. Um, back in uh, 1984, I, was taking a, I, I majored in Hebrew, my master's degree. So I was taking an exegetical class in, he, in the book of Leviticus. Thrilling study. Like, so when you're reading Genesis, Exodus, you're kind of cruising along. Genesis, Exodus, you're going through the Torah, and, and you run into Leviticus. What happens? What in the world? It's like the brakes... Got applied the burnt offering. What's this all about? And the fine flour and this and that. And why a lamb of the first year? And you start asking all kinds of questions. Uh, well, they assigned me chapter twenty three in the Hebrew text, uh, the feast of first fruits, and I was I was twenty seven years old, and I was like, what am I going to do with this? It became one of the more life changing things that I studied because Christ, Paul says, is the first fruits of them who are asleep. What's that mean? Feast of first fruits. Here's basically how it worked out in the Israeli culture. Uh, you're a farmer. You cast your seed out into your field. It begins to rain on your seed. That which germinates first, you cordon that part of your field off, and you say, that's God's. I'm not giving him my leftovers. I'm going to give him the first of my field, my first fruits. Then the rest of the field is mine at harvest time. So when the field's totally ready for harvest, you cordon off God's part, you harvest it, you take it to the temple, and you give it to God. This has something to do with tithing, too, and giving to God. You don't give him your leftovers. You give him your best. Another message. Another message. Feast of first fruits. But when you gave your first fruits to the priest, you were telling the priest, and God was telling you, there's more to come in your field. If Jesus is the first fruits, what's that mean? He's the first one to die and rise again, never to die again, which means that there's more to follow. I plan on following him because he's risen. I know I too shall rise because he's, he's the first one, and he's promised life to all those who come to know him. Well, how do I know that? Well, notice what Paul uh, says here at, at the end of this passage. Verse twenty one. It says, For since by a man came death, and by man also came the by and by man came also the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam, the first man, all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. This is very interesting. Christ came to replace death, physical and spiritual death, brought on by Adam and Eve's sin, with spiritual life. Resurrection. Notice it says he will resurrect all people. Does that mean that God is gonna resurrect all people to heaven? It's not what he said. He said he will resurrect all people, but there's two destinations. One is heaven, one is eternal punishment. It's what he said, not what I said. It's what Jesus taught. He said, I've came to defeat sin and death, but to give you resurrected life, it's your choice based on your faith in me as the Messiah, which direction you go. He said, I came to give life like eternal life to those who come to me. You have to ask the question, which direction you go in? Last point, goal number three, uh, the purpose of the resurrection is to replace false rule with true rule. False political rule with true political rule because well, God wants to establish his rule. Uh, we as Christians uh, uh, typically, uh, well, in different ep- episodes, different times of life, we'll pray the, the Lord's prayer. Perhaps you know it. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. What's the next part? Thy kingdom come. What's that? Thy will be done on earth that is in heaven. What is God's will? His God's will is to fulfill that prayer to bring his kingdom to earth. And when you look around on our old planet, uh, the tragedy here, the brutality from what we've seen, uh, as I was hearing in between the services, what happened to Sri-, Sri Lanka, the terrorist attack, all the things that happened in our old world, it needs the Messiah to come and fulfill that prayer. And that's what Paul says, is, is God is in the business of establishing his rule at the end of time. Because our, his version of time is not cyclical, it's linear heading to the kingdom of God. So look at verse 23. He says, but each in the resurrection uh, will, will go up in his own order. Uh, and the, the Greek word here, tagma, it means, it's a military term again. Uh, as in a military unit, there's order, is there not? If there's not a commanding officer and an exo and all that kind of stuff, you've got mayhem. So he said, uh, God's resurrection is very orderly. So God could fit into the D.C. culture perfectly because it's very orderly here. So he said, when you think about order of the resurrection, here's how it works. Paul says, Christ is the first fruits. After that, those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father. When he has abolished, notice what he abolishes, all rule on the planet. In all authority and power, God will eventually abolish it all to replace it with his rule. Verse 25, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death, for he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put into subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who has put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to the one, the father, who subjected all things to him. What's God's goal? So that God might be all in all, that his kingdom might be pervasive in the cosmos. God's going to establish his rule. He's going to defeat everything that sin and the devil has thrown at him. He's already done it at the cross and the resurrection, but but he's going to finally defeat it and put it to rest when he's done with his program. And what Paul does here is he gives you a preview of the resurrection order. Uh, he doesn't do it in great detail, so I'll kind of fill in some of the details of what he says there. What's the order of the resurrections? Um, there are six steps as I see it from what Paul says there and elsewhere. Uh, number one, Christ is the first resurrected one, right? Two, the next resurrection event is when the church age closes. That's the age we live in now, the age of grace, where God says, all you who are weary, come to me and I will give you life. Um, that age closes with the, the, laugh, the, the trumpet of God And he takes his church into heaven. So Christ is the first to resurrect. Second is his church taken into heaven at the rapture. Then the tribulation starts for seven years. Then all the saints that are martyred in the tribulation and all the saints of the Old Testament at the end of the seven-year tribulation will be resurrected to be with Christ in his kingdom. Christ then establishes his thousand-year Davidic kingdom. It's prophesied all throughout the Old Testament. And the actual time parameters are given in Revelation 20. It's gonna be a thousand years his Davidic empire, uh, as he works out his final plan for mankind. Uh, At the end of that, there will be another resurrection of the lost of all time. It's called the great white throne judgment. No Christian will be there, only the lost. They'll look for two things. God, when he calls your name, you'll come forward, uh, and he will say, is your name in the Lamb's book of life? The angel will look and not find your name. He'll then say, well, we'll judge you based upon your works. Will they be found sufficient? Every single person will not have their work sufficient. Why? Because the only thing that matters to God is the work of Christ. Remember, he paid for sin. He rose from the dead. It says at the end of all of that will then come the end. And what will happen is when uh, Satan and all his minions is thrown into the lake of fire and God's done with dealing with sin and the devil, uh, he will hand over the cosmic kingdom to the Father and say, Father, all things are finished. Uh, Your kingdom rules and reigns forever. Where are you going to be on that day? I know where I'm going to be, because my name's in the book. How do you get your name in the book? Well, mine went in there in 1967 when I asked Christ to be my Savior. Best thing I ever did. And uh, that Savior lives and reigns forevermore, and he's coming back again. And when you pray, God, send your kingdom, uh, it's not a pipe dream, because one day that king is going to arrive, and righteousness shall reign. We as Christians have much to be happy and joyous about this morning and this day because our Lord lives forevermore and we shall see him face to face. Um, If you don't know him, he's but a prayer away waiting for you to claim him as your Lord and Savior as you confess him. I hope you have a great Easter with your family. My wife's in California. The first time in 40 years she has not been with me. No telling what will happen without a cook in the residence. So <laughs> and we are going to some friend's house for dinner tonight. So may God bless your time with your family richly. Let's pray. God, thank you for the, the, the life of Paul, uh, a man who endured so much for his faith, uh, for his amazing conversion when he ran into you on the road to Damascus uh, until you took him home. He was faithful to the end to proclaim the gospel message that the Savior had come, he had died, and he had borne our sins, and he rose the third day. Might we as your saints lovingly and compassionately communicate that message to those about us who don't yet know you, and might you as the good shepherd go out and find, as you specialize doing, that that sheep that is lost to bring them into your fold by the means of faith. We pray for your anointing upon the rest of our service in Christ's name, amen. Happy Easter.